Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Uh, my name is Warren Kinghorn. I'm the co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative here at Duke. And it's really a pleasure to in welcome all of you to this gathering today. Uh, so let me introduce our speaker for today. Um, Dr. Daniel Stulick earned his BA from Dartmouth in 2001. He's a man of many uh, hats that are all coming together in this, in this talk. He subsequently worked as a campus minister, farm manager, and then Director of Agricultural Development for Partners in Health in Rwanda. He earned a Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary in 2012 and a PhD in Hebrew Bible Old Testament from Duke in 2017. He's the author of several peer-reviewed and magazine articles and a monograph titled History and Hope, The Agrarian Wisdom of Isaiah 28 to 35. And uh, when I asked him how he wanted to be introduced, he uh, wanted to uh, say that he was um, a uh, dedicated husband and father. So, so let me introduce with that uh, Dr. Sulik uh, for a talk entitled Land and People Together, A Biblical Vision of Health. Thank you, Warren. That was very kind. And it's a delight to be here. Thank you so much for for coming out for this. There's so many of you here. It's wonderful. Um, this is an opportunity for me to speak with you about uh, how, uh, speak with you about some ideas about how health is portrayed in the Bible, particularly with respect to how health is imagined and talked about in prophetic texts of the Old Testament. As Warren said, um, I'm a visiting assistant professor of Old Testament here at Duke Divinity School, and I teach introductory Hebrew and uh, intermediate Hebrew and upper-level exegesis courses on books, sort of like, uh, you know, books of the Bible, um, uh, Genesis, Kings, Isaiah, that sort of thing. I am no medical doctor, I can tell you. I am, as the joke goes, the sort of doctor that nobody needs. But of course, I don't really believe that because uh, it should be obvious that our ideas about what health really is are shaped by how we perceive and interpret the reality in which we live. We can't even begin to think about being healers if we don't know how to define sickness. So I've broken up, to get our, I've broken up the talk today into three different parts. And first, without rehashing uh, my CV for you, I'd like to give you a sense of my own intellectual and spiritual background so that you can understand why the subject of human health might be interesting to someone like me as a biblical scholar. And second, as we make a turn toward the Bible uh, to look at some specific passages together, we need to talk about a few hermeneutical assumptions, hermeneutical questions uh, that pertain to... Um, to questions like, what is the Bible, and what is it for? What is it good for? And what kind of contemporary interpretive strategies might help us to get a clearer picture on its theological vision? And then third and finally, we need to look at, we'll look at some actual biblical texts together and try to sort out what they might be saying to us today about sickness and healing, even in our oh-so-modern industrial 21st century context. So that's the game plan. 
However, if you take nothing else away from this seminar, if you take nothing else away, let me tell you up front what I have in mind, okay? Here it is in a nutshell. The Bible's vision of human health is unapologetically and unswervingly holistic. If the Western church were to take seriously the Bible in this respect, then we would necessarily reject two major philosophical commitments characteristic of the modern industrial world. First, the assumption that humans can thrive while distinguishing themselves ontologically from a hypothetical environment that surrounds them. And two, the superstition that human bodies can be adequately healed apart from the repair and redemption of souls in relationship with their creator, because religion is just purely a matter of personal, private, imaginary, and abstract beliefs that have no bearing on physical reality. So I'm, now I'm going to say the same thing in reverse, okay? If the Western church were to submit itself to the Bible's holistic vision of health, then we would affirm two important truths. First, as created beings, not just simply material beings, but as created beings, we belong here on planet Earth, and we are part of a vast interlocking tapestry that includes all forms of non-human creation, from, from worms to wallabies. In other words, there is no environment, there is only creation, of which we are a part and on which we depend for our continued life and health. And number two, we would affirm that as creatures, as opposed to gods, as creatures, we not only belong here on planet Earth, but we also belong in relationship with a creator who loves us and who wills good for us. And therefore, our bodies will not and can never be whole if we take up a position of autonomy and independence over against our creator who made us. So let's begin. I'll start with a little bit of my own background and story. I'm just a Midwestern kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s, grew up on processed food and soccer practice and minivans. But I always loved the outdoors, right? I always loved the outdoors. And, and while in college in New Hampshire, I underwent, I underwent what you might call an ecological awakening. I discovered the trees and the birds and the animals of the great, great North Woods. And I I had more than one profound encounter with a local fox. I believe we came to a mutual respect and understanding. I spent as much time as I possibly could wandering around the various mountainsides of New Hampshire, turning over rocks and gazing up into the treetops and just learning to observe the world around me for the first time. But it dawned on me as I was sitting on top of a mountain one day, looking out toward Maine in the east and Vermont in the west, that in as much as I, you know, quote unquote, loved the land, and in as much as I had hiked every 4,000 foot peak in New Hampshire, not once, but twice, I'd spent a lot of time wandering around those mountains, I was still a tourist in that place. There I was, I was eating a sandwich that came from God knows where, but which I had purchased at a gas station earlier that day. And I had left the designated region of human industry and I had rocketed forth into the woods like an astronaut with all of his or her equipment and fuel and food into the pure, unadulterated environment. And when I was done entertaining myself there, being the, being the responsible hiker that I was, I would pack out what I had packed in, 
thus returning to the zone of exploitation from whence I came. Wendell Berry writes in his The Unsettling of America, once we see our place, our part of the world as surrounding us, we have already made a profound division between it and ourselves. About one year after my undergraduate education had come to a close, I spent a summer in Mongolia in the city of Ulaanbaatar, uh, living in an apartment with a group of Christian college students. We took a trip out of the city one week to live in yurts in the Mongolian countryside, which is a region of the world that's characterized by hundreds of miles of unbroken, unfenced pasture land. And it was gorgeous, to say the least. And I have many stories about drinking fermented horse milk that I could share with you. But I will not tell you any of those stories. I will tell you a different story instead. One bright, beautiful morning, I woke up inside my yurt. Uh, the sun was shining on the green grass outside. Uh, just green grass as far as the eye could see. There's rolling hills and, and clear rivers and craggy peaks out back. Bright purple larkspurs were just forming a carpet across the lawn in front of me, all covered with dew. So I, you know, I, would, I am drunk with excitement at this point. So I, I lace on my boots, you know, I get ready to go and, and out I go into the Mongolian countryside. And uh, I scramble up the nearest mountain uh, to get a look at things and uh, sit down and just sort of enjoy the scenic beauty of it all. And when I returned, I was soaking wet from the dew and grinning like an idiot. My Mongolian friend Enke met me at the door. He said, asked me where I'd gone, right? So I pointed to the peak out behind me. I said, I'm sure quite proudly, I climbed that mountain. And he raised an eyebrow he looked at the mountain, he looked at me, he looked back at the mountain, and he looked at me and he said, why? Why? You see, for me, thoroughly informed by Western values and assumptions, in order to engage with that mountain, I needed to stand on top of it. I needed to dominate it. I needed to master it. But for Enke, who had grown up in a yurt in the Mongolian countryside, there was no environment out there beyond the fences to be explored. In fact, there were no fences at all. Right? He was already at home where he was. He was naturally in place. Again, once we see our part of the world as surrounding us, we have already made a profound division between it and ourselves. Experiences like these turn me to agriculture. After all, even when one is consuming a gas station sandwich on top of a mountain in New Hampshire, Eating is still intrinsically an agricultural act. Eventually, I became an educational farmer, which is nothing like being a for-profit farmer. But I did learn a lot from that experience, a lot, about, uh, a lot of principles about land, soil, and food. And eventually, I served for a couple years along uh, Partners in Health in Rwanda as the Director of Agricultural Development, as Warren said in the introduction, creating an assistance program for HIV-positive and malnutrition patients at their hospital in a tiny town in the eastern part of the country. And so I'll, I'll share with you one more uh, short story from my life uh, from, that, from that time. Uh, one of my coworkers, and an agronomist named Benjamin, wanted to introduce me to his extended family on the other side of the country. So one weekend, we got in the minibus, and we drove all day, all the way across Rwanda. We finally arrived in his small village. One by one, all of his brothers and sisters came out to meet me. And, and after about 12 or 15 of these individuals, I realized that 
really I was meeting cousins and second cousins and third cousins and so on and so forth. I met his parents, I met all the aunts, I met all the uncles. And, if, and finally I met grandfather and I thought, okay, now we've really covered everybody. But I was wrong, we weren't done. After meeting all of the human members of the family, we went out back one by one, we went down the line of the barn and, and I was introduced to each four-legged member of the family, each cow by name, one by one down the line. And finally, we got to the last stall in the barn, which was empty. And Benjamin turned to me and he said, and here is Umuchechu. And I turned to him, I said, what? What do you mean? Umuchechu, that, doesn't that mean grandmother? What do you mean? Well, grandmother had been buried in the barn, in the last stall amongst the livestock. This was sacred space right here next to the manure, sacred space. I always say, I learned more from that moment about how to read the pre-modern Bible than I did from my education at Princeton Theological Seminary, with all due respect to my teachers there. Those cows were part of the family, vital parts of the family. Benjamin and his relatives perceived their animals in a way that did not differentiate between spheres of preservation versus use. They did not differentiate between preservation and use. The Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, shares something of this holistic perspective on the world. I came to Duke to pursue my doctorate uh, Primarily because when I was in seminary, I had encountered a book written in 2009 by Ellen Davis called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, an agrarian reading of the Bible. And Davis makes a profound hermeneutical claim in this volume. She says that contemporary agrarians like Wendell Berry and Wes Jackson and Frederick Kirshenman and a host of many others can help us to become better readers of the Bible because their holistic worldview shares a family resemblance with the holistic worldview of the Bible's pre-modern authors. In my own uh, research and uh, interpretation of biblical texts, I've, I've been trying to build on this idea. An agrarian hermeneutic, or let's call it an agrarian reading strategy, because that's all it is. It's an approach to biblical literature that is informed by the values and the lived practices characteristic of contemporary agrarians. So again, an agrarian hermeneutic it's a reading strategy. It's a posture for interpretation that is informed by contemporary agrarianism. It's not the only good reading strategy out there. There are, there are loads of other good reading strategies, but an agrarian hermeneutic is uniquely effective because it is by nature holistic. And therefore, it avoids various kinds of anachronisms typical of other contemporary biblical hermeneutics with which you may be familiar, whether you are coming to the Bible from the theological right or the theological left. One of the most pervasive and insidious of these anachronisms within Western thought is the assumption that reality is best understood when it is carved up or, or when knowledge is carved up into freestanding unrelated categories. So agrarianism by nature makes a lateral move outside the modern epistemological tradition and its rigid categories. The world as perceived by agrarians is an integrated reality. It's an integrated reality. 
Now, because this seminar is a TMC seminar, part of a program at Duke Divinity School devoted to the intersection of theology and health, let's look closely at what a typical agrarian has to say about human health. And when we've done that, let's see if we can deploy some of these agrarian principles toward a fresh understanding of a couple different biblical texts. And I think, I think the, re the result is going to surprise and delight you, especially if you are someone uh, who um, uh, desires to become or who is already a medical professional of any kind. And if you are also someone who wants to do that without, or, and follow your, follow your vocation in that without checking your Christianity at the door. Now, this is, a, this is a long quote by Wendell Berry, and there's a lot of text on the screen. I'm going to read this uh, in case you can't see it in the back. Um, but it's, I think this is important to hear uh, this quote in full from Wendell Berry about human health. He, this is from his essay, The Body and the Earth. He says, Wendell Berry says, If the body is healthy, then it is whole. But how can it be whole and yet be dependent, as it obviously is, upon other bodies and upon the earth, upon all the rest of creation, in fact. It becomes clear that the health or wholeness of the body is a vast subject, and that, it and that to preserve it calls for a vast enterprise. Our bodies are also not distinct from the bodies of other people, on which they depend in a, in a complexity of ways from biological to spiritual. They are not distinct from the bodies of plants and, of plants and animals with which we are involved in the cycles of feeding, and in the intricate companionships of ecological systems and of the spirit. They are not distinct from the earth, the sun and moon, and the other heavenly bodies. It is therefore absurd to approach the subject of health piecemeal with a departmentalized band of specialists. A medical doctor uninterested in nutrition, in agriculture, in the wholesomeness of mind and spirit is as absurd as a farmer who is uninterested in health. Our fragmentation of this subject cannot be our cure because it is our disease. Our fragmentation of this subject cannot be our cure because it is our disease. The body cannot be whole alone. Persons cannot be whole alone. It is wrong to think that bodily health is compatible with spiritual confusion or cultural disorder or with polluted air and water or impoverished soil. Intellectually, we know that these patterns of interdependence exist and we understand them better now than perhaps we ever have. Yet modern social and cultural patterns contradict them and make it difficult or impossible to honor them in practice. To try to heal the body alone is to collaborate in the destruction of the body. Healing is impossible in loneliness. It is the opposite of loneliness. Conviviality is healing. To be healed, we must come with all the other creatures to the feast of creation. Now, there's a lot there, and there's too much to unpack thoroughly in the limited amount of time that we have. But that said, I want to make three points that will help to steer us toward a, a fresh understanding of the Bible's discourse on human health. In this quote from The Body and the Earth, Barry observes that a clear understanding of human health depends on our recognition of at least three related principles. First, because we are, by definition, creatures we are embedded in a dense network of other bodies, plants and animals and other forms of non-human creation. And for this reason, any consideration of human health de demands that we address agriculture and other means of food production at the same time. Human health is an unavoidably agroecological subject. Two, 
Because we are, by definition, creatures, we are made for relationship with God. It is wrong to think that bodily health is compatible with spiritual confusion or cultural disorder, he says. As misguided as it is to think that human health could be compatible with smog, mercury poisoning, or toxic waste dumps. We're not autonomous gods. We are made by a someone. And if that is true, then we cannot hope to be whole apart from acts of repentance or rethinking how we live while humbly submitting ourselves to our creator's rule. And three, because we are by definition creatures, we are also made for relationship with others. Healing is impossible in loneliness, says Barry. Rather, conviviality is healing. For you, for you who are future doctors out there, genuine friendship might be the most important gift you ever give your patients. The capitalist clientization of the doctor-patient relationship may seek to rectify unhealthy power dynamics, but it fails to address the root of the disease, for it simply replaces one barrier to the restoration of whole persons with another. In the eschaton, healthcare will not and cannot be for sale. So to summarize, according to Wendell Berry, whom I take to be an archetypal agrarian voice, the subject of human health cannot be adequately addressed apart from its agroecological dimension, its theological dimension, or its social dimension. Now, as Christian interpreters of the Bible, what might it look like for us to allow these principles to inform our reading strategies, our hermeneutics? I'm sorry about that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, the sound is off. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, what, might, what might it look like for us to allow these principles to inform our reading strategies, our, reading strategies, our hermeneutics? And before turning to the discrete examples that I have in mind, let me first list off a couple of basic assumptions that I make with respect to the biblical text so that I can show you more accurately uh, how an agrarian hermeneutic works, what it can do, and how it can help. First, Old Testament texts are scripture and they are liturgy. They have been constructed for someone, for, for a redemption community. And dare I say, they have been, they have been constructed for you. They are not jumbled anthologies left over from the ancient world. They, they emerge from the ancient world, but they are not primarily records or even didactic records of the ancient world, even while they remain deeply rooted in Israel's historical past. Second, Old Testament texts have been brought together into whole books. So Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, thank you, Isaiah, that sort of thing whole books that are characterized by deep and sophisticated intratextual patterns of words, concepts, motifs, and typologies, all of which encourage you, the reader, to identify generative analogies between stories or poetic stanzas. So as a result, the Bible's kerygma, the Bible's kerygma, it emerges not by extracting a text from its situation within the book and then mapping that text um, onto a hypothetical reconstruction of the past. But rather, the Bible's kerygma emerges when we learn to trace out the lexical and conceptual literary patterns in which a given text participates. 
And third, the Bible is primarily a book about God. It grants theology pride of place over anthropology. Amid our ongoing culture wars, it's important to remember that the Bible posits that you can't actually know how to identify yourself apart from the question of God. The question of God in the Bible is primary to the reader's secondary question of self. And fourth and finally, because of the preceding three points, the Old Testament by nature strongly resists the temptation to map the events and behaviors it depicts onto the present in any sort of flat-footed, one-to-one moralistic sense. So in other words, as we learn to submit to the Bible's instruction, especially with respect to Old Testament narratives, we should not simply observe what a biblical character does, judge it good or bad, and then choose to either perform or dismiss that behavior. So we're about to look at some stories from the Elijah narratives in the book of Kings and, and stories that may give us new insight into, into healthcare and healing. Vital to remember, however, that if the text is a liturgy characterized by deep intertextual patterns that reveal its theological kerygma, then we need to interpret these stories by putting them in dialogue with each other rather than simply using them as models for our behavior in the present. The Bible is a theological landscape. It's a landscape in which to discover God and to learn to love God. It's not, it's not a weapon that hangs over you like Damocles' sword. It's a theological landscape in which to learn to know God and love God. If I'm right about all that, I know that was a little theoretical, but if I'm right about all that, how can an agrarian hermeneutic help us? Most of us in the industrial world inhabit a situation characterized by discrete categories, a world where physical ailments have little connection to United States agricultural policy, to the production or price of milk, to one's religious preference, or to a sick person's prayer life, his or her access to fields and forests, or to the quality of that person's network of friends, or even the virtue of those friends. I would argue that our saturation in this fragmented world of rigid categories frequently inhibits our ability to grasp the Bible's theological vision. And conversely, an agrarian hermeneutic, a reading strategy characterized by integration and holism, can help us to move past the epistemological limitations that our industrialized worldview presents and can help us register the Bible's texture in a fresh way. An agrarian hermeneutic can help us to catch the Bible's good news with respect to the body and the earth. So if you have a Bible with you, feel free to open it. If you don't, that's okay. The text, all the text will be on the screen. And turn with me to 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24. This is a story about physical healing. Appropriate, I think, for you future doctors and other medical professionals. In fact, it's the first account of a resurrection in the Bible. The prophet Elijah has declared a drought and hence a famine in Israel. To give you some context, in verses 2 through 6 of this chapter, God sends Elijah to the Wadi Kareth to be sustained there by ravens, an image of total dependence on God's provision. But the Wadi soon dries up presumably because of the drought. So God tells Elijah that he must go to the foreign town of Zarephath, 
north of Israel to be sustained again, but this time by a widow instead of ravens. And Elijah obeys, he finds the widow, but discovers, of course, that she is in dire circumstances. In fact, he finds her collecting firewood to cook a meal, a last meal for herself and her son. Some sustenance, right? Some sustenance. Once again, the prophet must become dependent on an unlikely source of food. And meanwhile, the woman, if she and her son are to be saved, must likewise demonstrate dependence on God's prophet, which she does by giving him the first portion of her meal. Wendell Berry once observed that marriage is a state of mutual help. This unlikeliest of unions, wherein the prophet of God literally shacks up with a foreign woman, gives birth to a miraculous economy that sustains them all. But then, in verse 17, a new threat to life and health. Text reads, After these things, the son of the woman became sick in the upper room of the house, and, and it happened that his sickness gripped him to the point that no breath was left in him. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to put my son to death? So he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her embrace and brought him up to the upper room where he was staying and laid him down on the bed. Then he called out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, to this widow with whom I am sojourning, will you do evil by causing the death of her son? Then he measured himself over the child three times and called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this boy's nephesh return to him. Let his life force, his soul return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's voice and the boy's nephesh returned to him and he lived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room of the house. He gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, look, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. <clears throat> How shall we interpret such a tantalizing story? Should we imitate God's prophet by approaching the destitute and downtrodden in our midst, demanding that they give up what few resources they have for the greater good? I think not. Or perhaps Elijah's act of measuring himself three times over the dead boy contains some hidden allegorical meaning. Immediateclinic.com informs me that there are three things I should look for in a doctor. Accessibility, trust, and experience. Perhaps Elijah models a three-step program to better health. Exercise, nutrition, and stress reduction. Again, I think not. I'm not even going to tell you that you should pray for the sick under your care, just like Elijah did. After all, you are Christians working in healthcare, many of you. Of course you should pray for your patients. I don't think we need this narrative simply to cajole us into a more regular or fervent prayer life. But if not these options, if not these options, then how shall we interpret the story of a resurrected child? The key lies in its connection to its immediate context. An agrarian hermeneutic can help us to identify and follow the clues. I'm initially attracted by the word gripped. This is a story about life and death, to be sure. And death initially seems to gain the upper hand when bodily illness grips the child in question. In the very next chapter, we see this word pop up again. 1 Kings 18, 1 through 2 reads as follows. 
Many days later, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, appear to Ahab in order that I may send rain upon the face of the soil. So Elijah went to appear to Ahab. Now a famine had gripped Samaria. This chapter 2, 1 Kings 18, is a story about life and death. And death, again, seems to have gotten the upper hand. But this time, famine grips a whole city. The key word, grip, helps you, the reader, to generate a productive analogy in your mind. How, you should feel yourself prompted to ask, how is physical illness of the body like an agroecological catastrophe such as a three-year drought? How are our children's lives and livelihoods intimately bound up with the health of our soil? 1 Kings 17 is a great story on its own, but it's through the story's association with chapter 18 that the reader begins to see what is really at stake. Healing is an agroecological act. Notice how the story in 1 Kings 18 tells you at the very top what's about to happen. God has decided to send rain on Israel's desiccated land. God has already decided it. And that means the drama of the scenes to follow hinges less on the ultimate outcome, the return of the rain, which you, the reader, you know is coming. You know from the top of the story, rain is on its way. The drama doesn't hang on the question of does the rain return. The drama hangs on the question of how does the rain return? How does rain come back to the land? How is the land restored? How does Elijah bring agroecological health to his people and to his land? Well, he does so in perhaps the least appropriate way possible, according to the standards of modern healthcare. He criticizes his patient's spiritual life. He criticizes its religion. I'm sure you know the story. Elijah suggests a contest with the prophets of Baal, a contest that the whole nation is invited to witness on the top, on the top of Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal go first. They slaughter the sacrificial bull, and then they parade around it, slashing themselves with knives in the hope of attracting their non-God's attention. Call in a louder voice, says Elijah. Surely he is a God. Surely. Perhaps he has wandered off. Perhaps he is on the toilet. Or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. You know, famously, of course, this, uh, these words drip with sarcasm. And it's that sarcasm that forces the Israelite onlookers to consider that worship might be the real problem underlying the devastating drought. Is that the question we need to ask when a physical body or a whole city is gripped with sickness? With Baal not answering his prophet's overtures, finally it is Elijah's turn. He begins in a most curious fashion. He begins by healing the altar of the Lord that had been dismantled. In your English Bibles, no doubt, the word used here is repair or restore or rebuild because, of course, the altar is not a living creature. But in Hebrew, we do have other terminology for repair. It seems important that the narrator uses a word for Elijah's action that is usually applied to an animate creaturely body, its emotional, spiritual, psychological, or physical state. After the altar is healed, the sacrifice is saturated with water, and of course, fire falls from heaven to prove the point. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. All the people shout. The people repent. Baal is rejected. 
the rain returns and the famine that gripped Samaria, like the sickness that gripped the widow's son, finally comes to an end. Healing is a theological act. In the next chapter, 1 Kings 19, we find Elijah on the run for his life. Whereas the prophet raised a boy from the dead in chapter 17, here we find Elijah less in the role of wonder-working, truth-telling prophet and more in the role of the sick child himself. Starting in verse 4, 1 Kings 19 reads as follows. He went down the desert road a day's journey, and he came and sat below a certain rotem bush. It's a type of bush in that part of the world. Then he asked that his nephesh, again, his sort of life force or his spirit, uh, something like that. He asked that his nephesh would die. He said, it's too much. Now, Lord, take away my nephesh, for I am no better than my ancestors. He lay down and slept below that certain rotem bush. And check this out. An angel touched him and said to him, get up, eat. He looked, and indeed by his pillow were ember cakes and a jug of water. So he ate and he drank and he returned and he lay down again. So the angel of the Lord returned a second time, touched him and said, get up, eat, for the road is too much for you. He got up and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God, that is Horeb. Now, do you notice the key words, the key lexical correspondences with 1 Kings 17? The widow's son was sick to the point of death. Elijah, fearing for his own life, travels into the desert and asks to die. In the first story, Elijah lays the child down on his bed and prays that his nephesh would return to him. In the second story, it's Elijah's own nephesh that is imperiled to the point of death as he lies down to sleep. A symbolic mini-death on paradigm with the widow's son. He is restored. Check this out by an angel who returns to Elijah with food as Elijah once was fed by ravens in the wilderness. Of course, unlike the widow's son, Elijah is not physically ill. And yet by means of lexical and conceptual correspondences, the text invites you, the reader, to think of the two stories as standing in an analogous relationship with each other. Much as the word grip prompted you to identify the boy's sickness as a kind of mirror image of countrywide famine. What is Elijah's problem? What is his sickness in chapter 19? Upon reaching Horeb in verse 9, he enters a cave to spend the night, and he is met there by the voice of God. Why are you here, Elijah? Why are you here? Or as my mother used to say to me when I was very small, what's the trouble bubble? What's the trouble? Elijah responds with the following lament, and it's, it's crucial that you hear this as a lament. He says, I have been exceedingly zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, your altars they have dismantled, and your prophets they have killed with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking to take my nephesh too. So what's the problem, Elijah? What's the trouble bubble? Well, the problem is, says Elijah, the problem is, is that I'm alone. It's not that he is literally physically sick as he lies down in the desert. Rather, he is metaphorically sick because he is socially impoverished. His problem is a problem of community. It's a lack of friends. 
And what is God's response? God says, I will preserve in Israel 7,000 like you. I will build a prophetic community through you. As Wendell Berry writes, healing is impossible in loneliness. It is the opposite of loneliness. Conviviality is healing. Conviviality, I love that word. As healing is an agroecological act and also a theological act, so too healing is also a social act, an act of friendship. By way of conclusion, let me just uh, direct your attention to the image that I placed on the screen right at the beginning of this presentation. If you don't know the, the artist Hey Key, I highly recommend his stained glass-like paintings to you. In light of our discussion today, I wonder if anything in this image pops for you upon a second viewing. Of course, it's a representation of 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, the story of Elijah sleeping in the desert that we looked at together just now. Personally, I'm intrigued by the artist's color palette, the image's depiction of plants in both the background and in the foreground, while the sleeping Elijah curls up in the middle like a seed buried in the soil. The trees behind Elijah cover him like a canopy, while the leaves in front of him point up the overall picture's rich use of chlorophyll green. Wait, you say, didn't Elijah undergo his near-death experience, his social death, if we could call it that, in the desert? Well, I suppose, I suppose. But I would, I would suggest to you that Hey Key is picking up on a key feature of this story from 1 Kings 19, and, and namely, that is its analogous relationship to the preceding chapter's interest in theologically driven agroecological restoration the return of the rain. The Bible's vision of health is fundamentally, unremittingly, unapologetically holistic. The Bible yearns for the land and the people together, existing together in unity. As Wendell Berry writes, our fragmentation of this subject cannot be our cure for it is our disease. Healing is not limited to the chemical content or the structure of the physical body. Rather, according to Christian scripture, healing is not only a physiological act, it is also an agroecological act. Healing is likewise a theological act and healing is a social act. By definition, we are, as human beings, we are earthbound creatures made for a relationship with our creator. We're not gods, we're not autonomous, we're not independent. We're creatures, we're creatures, first and foremost. So for those of you who are here today as aspiring healthcare professionals or who are already in those positions or are here uh, for any other reason, and you want to live out your vocation in a way that remains responsible to Christian theology, I encourage you to take this biblical vision of health seriously. After all, to be healed, we must come together with all the other creatures to the feast of creation. Get up, said the angel. Get up and eat. Thank you very much. I appreciate the attention.